Well, I invite, <clears throat> invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking uh, primarily at verses 18 through 20 this morning. Uh, but I want to uh, go ahead and start reading in verse 13 to just remind you of the context again of this passage. So 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'll start reading in verse uh, 13. The Holy Spirit um, guided Peter to write these words for our blessing and for our benefit. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, You are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Now let me stop at verse 14 because this is the main point, I think, of this passage. And the reason why he's writing it is he's trying to encourage those who are suffering for the sake of righteousness. Some of them already are as he's writing this letter to them. Some of them will be in the future. But he wants to encourage and build the faith of those who are suffering or who will suffer for righteousness. So that's kind of driving this whole section. So the first thing he tells them in verse 14 is you're blessed. And they're blessed, as Jesus said, because their reward in heaven will be great. And then he goes on to say, and do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled. Verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So now as you're suffering for righteousness, don't fear their intimidation, but continue to sanctify Christ as your Lord, being ready to give a defense for your faith, your hope in Christ. Verse 16, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So keep your conscience clean. Keep it good. Don't violate your conscience. So even if they slander you, even if they defile you, they will be put to shame. But you be faithful to the Lord. You give that faithful witness. You live for Christ. You sanctify Him. Keep your conscience clean. Don't give in to sin or betrayal or denial that will make you have a guilty conscience. Keep a good conscience. Verse 17. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, is how I'm interpreting that. And basically he's saying, look, you're suffering for righteousness, so did Christ. He suffered the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. But look at the end of it, because He's going to be resurrected. 
He suffered unjustly, but look at the end of His suffering. It was glory. It was resurrection. He was raised by the Spirit. And I think He's encouraging them that you will share in that. So if you suffer for righteousness, be faithful. Persevere. Because after your suffering, you too with Christ will share in His resurrection glory. You'll be with Him forever. And then in verse 19, he says, "...in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water." And I'm going to stop there because now we're entering into troubled waters. (laughs) This is a very challenging section to try to interpret. Who are these spirits that Jesus is making a proclamation to in verse 19? They're in prison, but who are they? When did He make the proclamation? And why is He bringing Noah here and the ark and the flood and only eight of them saved through the water? Why why is he bringing all that in here? So if you read the commentaries, and I've read a number of them, you're going to find them going off in all different directions. But what I want to do is uh, begin by trying to interpret what does it mean that Christ made a lie by the Spirit when He made proclamation to the spirits now in prison? So what is that all about? So I want to briefly review three interpretations of this passage. So, this morning we're going to love God with our minds. We're going to try to use our mind to grapple with this text. And I have no confidence that I am right in the view that I'm going to give to you this morning. Uh, There are godly great scholars that hold to all three of these views. And I'm going to tell you which one I think right now at this point in time is the best view. And by 2 o'clock this afternoon, I may switch to another one. Who knows? But I'm, it's, it's very challenging. So let me go over the three views first. The first view is that Christ, after He died on the cross, in verse 18, He was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit, that after His death, He goes to hell and He makes a proclamation to the evil spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah. So that's one view. And I'll discuss that a little bit more in a moment. So that's the evil spirit view. View number two is that Christ, after His resurrection, made a proclamation to the spirits of men who were disobedient in the days of Noah and in hell. So that's view number two. So he goes and he makes a proclamation not to evil spirits, demons, but to all the unbelievers who died during the days that Noah preached uh, and while he was making the ark. So that's view number two. View number three is that Christ personally didn't go to hell and preach to anybody, but what Peter is talking about is that Noah back in his day was filled with the Spirit of Christ and Noah preached to the living people during his day. 
So that they are now dead and now they're in prison because they did not believe in what Noah was preaching to them. But it's talking about Noah preaching to the people of his day and age while he was building the ark who have since died in the flood and are now in hell. So that's the third view. So with that in mind, let me, let me just comment about this third view. I don't think that's the best view. And part of it is when you look at verse 19, it says, In which, that is in the Spirit, He, Jesus, went and made proclamation. So it's referring to Christ Himself making this proclamation. If Peter had in mind that, no, no, it was really Noah making the proclamation filled with the Spirit of Christ, I think he would make it a little clearer for me that that was the view. So the third view that I just went over, I'm going to set off to the side because I don't think that, uh, that best explains it. In verse 19, when it says, He went... That very same Greek word occurs a few verses later in verse 22 where it says that Christ is at the right hand of God having went or gone into heaven. It's the exact same verb. Well, this is His resurrection body. This is Jesus Himself going to heaven. So it's clear in the context that Peter is using this word of Jesus Himself going somewhere. So it's probably not just Noah the one doing the proclamation. No, Jesus went and made proclamation, verse 19. So the Noah view is popular. A lot of great people hold that view. That was Augustine's view. I don't think is, uh, is the best view. So I'm going to, uh, to table that and set that one aside. So now let's deal with when did, when did Christ make this proclamation? And again, in verse 18, it says that He was put to death in the body, that would be on the cross, but made alive by the Spirit. This would be His resurrection. That's the King James Version. It's the NIV Version. My version has Spirit in lowercase s, but I do think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And I think this is a reference to His resurrection. He's made alive. That's that's an expression used for his, His resurrection. He's made alive by the Spirit. And in this, in which, that is in this resurrection, spirit-made body, glorified body, he goes and makes a proclamation. So I think it happens after his resurrection. And in verse 19, it states that, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So that, uh, that is my understanding of when this proclamation is being made. It's not being made back in Noah's day. It's being made after Christ was raised from the dead. Okay, now we have to wrestle with who is He making the proclamation to? Is it to demons that were active back in the days of Noah? Or is it the unbelievers who did not listen to Noah's preaching and who died in unbelief? So who are these spirits in prison that Jesus is making this proclamation to? And, and before I jump into that, let me, let me make a 
comment about the word proclamation here in verse 19. The word that Peter uses here is a very general word for making a declaration or for making a proclamation. Now some people think that it's he, he went and he preached the gospel to them. And this, this is wrong for many different reasons. But there is a different Greek word that means specifically to preach the gospel. And Peter uses that word three times in this letter in other passages. So if that's what he meant, then he could have easily used that word here. But this is a different word. So it's a very, it's a proclamation that can be a proclamation of many different things. Most commentators, therefore, will say that the nature of the proclamation or the message of the proclamation, which is not given to us, so we don't know this for sure, would be something along the lines of Jesus making a proclamation of His victory and triumph over death, over sin, by virtue of His death and His resurrection. And He makes this proclamation to the spirits in prison. He's not proclaiming the Gospel for a second chance of salvation view. He is making a proclamation that risen from the dead, He has conquered death, He has the right to judge the living and the dead. He is the risen, glorified Son of Man who will come to judge again the living and the dead. Something like that. We don't know for sure. It's not told us. Most commentators will say that the proclamation to the spirits now in prison was something along those lines. It's after His resurrection and He's proclaiming His victory and triumph and saving His people from their sins. That He has the authority as the risen Son of Man, Son of God, to be the judge of the world, the living and the dead. Something like that. Again, we don't know. But most, uh, most think that it goes somewhere in that direction. So now, who are these spirits? In verse uh, 19. He went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. So this is the first uh, view that these spirits are the fallen angels. And you say, where did they get that from? Well, people who hold this view will go back to Genesis chapter 6. And they understand that the reference to the sons of God actually refer to demons, fallen angels. Now let me read this passage and I'll explain to you how they interpret it. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. So the sons of God, they say, these are the demons. You say, well, how do they associate that with demons? Because in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, the sons of God are demons in the presence of God. And he calls to Satan and he says, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And the rest of that. But they're actually referring to demons in Job, the book of Job. This is a different book. This is a book of Genesis. This is a different author. Most... uh, or I say many commentators believe that the sons of God here are the sons of Seth, 
who started worshiping God. And the, the end, if you go on and read in Genesis chapter 6, so the sons of God see that the daughters of men are beautiful, so they, they marry them. They have sexual relations with them. They have all these children. And these children are just basically evil to the core. And the earth becomes so overrun with this evil progeny that God comes to Noah and says, I've got I've to put an end to this. We're going we're gonna to wipe out the entire human race with a worldwide flood. You build an ark and you and your family alone I'll save. But the wickedness that was on the earth was the result of these demons having children with human wives. So this is amazing. This is a very popular view. Um, I think earlier in my ministry, I was drawn to this view, but I don't think it's the right view uh, now for a number of reasons. Um, Part of the uh, problem with this uh, particular view is that the word spirits here in verse 19 first peter 3:19 normally well it can refer to either evil spirits demons or human spirits it can refer to both normally when it refers to demons or evil spirits there's always a, an adjective that goes with it like evil spirits or unclean spirits. The vast majority of the time, it's made clear by an adjective, evil or unclean, or the context which clearly indicates that demons are in view. You don't have that in First Peter 3. Now the reason why some people think it's demon spirits is because they rely too much on one of the Jewish uh, literature, some of the Jewish literature back then, and particularly a book called First Enoch. First Enoch is not in the Bible. It's part of what we call the pseudepigrapha, the false writings. They're not inspired by God, but they were Jewish writings that many Jews read. And in this book, First Enoch, it's not written by the biblical Enoch, but they interpret the sons of God in Genesis 6 as fallen angels. And so because that book was around when Peter wrote 1 Peter, they think that all these churches in modern day Turkey were familiar with 1 Enoch and they were influenced by that particular view. And so that Peter was influenced by it and the readers knew it so he could just mentioned spirits, and they knew he was talking about demons. That's part of the assumption that's being made here. Again, the, the, the problem with that is that nothing in the context suggests that these are demon spirits, when in the New Testament, there normally is something clear in the context. There's really no indication either, other than assumption, that the readers knew about First Enoch, or that Peter knew about first thing. All that is an assumption. So the idea that these are demon spirits, there's nothing in First Peter that suggests that they are. So I think that's a problem with that particular view. On top of that, it's, it's, a, it's a strange view to think that demons can 
cohabitate with human women and produce human offspring that are just really defiled and wicked to the core. I mean, angels don't marry, right? I mean, we're told that. But how can you have a spirit who can't create a a male seed actually have offspring with women? It just sounds awfully strange and weird to me. So, that particular view... I think is not the not the correct view. Um, again, the problem is is uh, not only just the bizarre nature of this taking place, but the lack of contextual support for that view in First Peter uh, chapter three. So let's go now to the next view. Y'all hanging with me? This is kind of the next view is that these are human spirits. Not demon spirits, but human spirits. And so verse 19 would read, After Christ arose from the dead, He went and made proclamation to the human spirits that are now in prison. So in this particular view, there are some things that I think contribute to this view being better. The first is we've got to ask ourselves, when, when did these spirits commit their acts of disobedience. So look look carefully again at verse 19 and 20. So it's talking about Christ raised from the dead in which He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So what is Peter saying? These spirits are disobedient during the days that Noah is building the ark. That's when they were disobedient. So that would refer to the human population living in sin, wicked, rebellious, during the days that Noah was building the ark. So it can't really refer to the demon spirits because their disobedience, their great sin was way before that. It was their sin that created this offspring, this wicked, evil generation of people that got so bad over so many years and so many decades that God finally said, okay, I'm wiping them all out. I'm going to start afresh with you, Noah, and your family. So the demon sin was not during the days that Noah was building the ark. It was way before that. So that lends, in my mind, support that the spirits in prison are human spirits. And also, we ask the question, okay, these spirits are in prison. What is that prison? Well, the prison that's uh, referred to is probably the prison of hell. Um, most of the time that this word is used in the New Testament, it refers to a jail where believers a lot of times are being thrown in prison for their faith. So it's, it's talking about a physical prison that people are thrown into when they get into trouble. However, a few times it is used of a spiritual jail, or we could say hell. 
For example, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, Satan is thrown into a prison for a thousand years. So it can refer to this place, this, this aspect of judgment that Satan is actually cast into. So in that sense, it could re- re- refer to something like a spiritual prison or to hell. And that would be the way this particular view would interpret it. So here you've got all these people that were alive during Noah's day. And Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness. And these, the population that were on the earth at that time were vile and wicked. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So these are the people that Noah was preaching to. 2 Peter 2.5 says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he's preaching to this humanity that is evil, wicked. The intent of their thoughts in their heart was only evil continually. That's his congregation. Those are the people that would walk by, see him build the ark, He's preaching to them and they just hate Him for it. And obviously, they do not believe Him. So these are the ones that are going to be destroyed in the flood. So these are the ones who are disobedient. They had to be alive during the days that Noah was building the ark. So that rules out the demon spirits. Seems to focus more upon all the human people that were there uh, during the days of Noah while he was building the ark. So after they die in the flood, their souls are sent to hell. And that's where they are when Jesus, in His resurrected body, now goes and makes His proclamation to them. In verse 20, we are also told that during the days when Noah is building the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Only eight. So the entire human race, corrupt to the core, wicked, evil, thoughts are evil only continually, they all perished in this worldwide flood that took place in the days of Noah. So everybody died. The entire human race at that point in time died in the flood waters. Because the human race had become so depraved and God's common grace was withdrawn from them so that they were so vile and wicked, God said, we're starting afresh. I'm going to clean the earth. I'm going to destroy all of these people. Everybody but Noah and his family. A total of eight people were the only ones that survived because Noah, instructed by God, made this ark. took him a long time to make that ark, no doubt. But during all that time, the people would come by, they would see him and ask him, he'd tell them that God's about to judge the world because of your sin, and they probably mocked at him and sneered at him and may have persecuted him to some degree or another. 
So what we see, what Peter is doing now, is he's saying, look at Noah. He is a righteous man. And all of his enemies, all of those who rejected his witness, perished in the flood. But he and his family were saved. And I think that is why Peter brings up this account of Noah. Why does he he bring in the flood here? I think he brings in the flood because there are certain parallels between Noah's day and Peter's day and the readers that he's writing this letter to. Let me just kind of draw some of the parallels out. Obviously, the world was full of evil back then. In Peter's day, people are still evil and wicked. They're persecuting Christians. The believers were suffering for righteousness, just like Noah was. Again, in Genesis 6-11, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. And in Peter's day, the world was filled with violence. They were persecuting these believers in Peter's day. So there's a parallel to some degree. Again, we know that Noah was a righteous man in Genesis 6-9. It says Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. He was the remnant in his day and age. And in Peter's day and age, he's writing his letter to the remnant to those who are chosen, the few. And then the main point is that all of the unbelievers were judged in the flood and the family of Noah alone was saved. So all of the enemies of the Gospel, all the enemies of Noah's preaching who rejected it were judged. They were put to death in the flood. But Noah and his family alone were saved in the ark. And I think in Peter's mind, he is drawing reference to Noah to draw that parallel to encourage his readers. Because you see, they were suffering for righteousness. They were being threatened with persecution. And what Peter is saying is, Just as with Christ, so with Noah. They suffered for righteousness, but they triumphed in the end. All of those who were enemies of the Gospel, Peter's, I think, drawing this implication with his readers. All of those who are persecuting you, what's going to happen to them? Just like those in the days of Noah. They will be destroyed by God's judgment. But God's people alone, His chosen ones, will be saved. Remember that. Remember that. Don't be discouraged when you suffer for righteousness. So did Noah. So did Christ on the cross. He rose triumphant from the grave. Noah was saved because he was in the ark. He and his family alone were saved. And God will preserve you. He will protect you. He will save you even if you suffer now for righteousness sake. And I think the illustration of Noah 
just kind of brings that back that the enemies of God are judged. The friends of God, the believers in God, those who walk with God, they will be saved. And that, I think, is part of the point of drawing their attention to Noah and the flood. So Peter is trying to encourage his readers. Don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid of those people that are persecuting you or slandering you or reviling you because they will suffer shame. Remember, he said that already to them. But you will be saved in the end forever. And I think again, the analogy of Noah is making that point. I think something else about Noah that's important to to think about just for a moment. Because I, I, when I come to this passage, I'm, I'm, I'll say, okay, I can understand that to a degree. But why did Christ go to hell if this is the right view and make a proclamation to all these sinners in the day of Noah that refused to repent and believe? And He made a proclamation of His of His. His victory, His triumph, His exaltation, because He's risen from the dead now, and He and He goes and He makes His proclamation of His authority to be the judge over the living. Why, why, why did Jesus do that? Why, why did He go there if this is the right view? Again, this may not be the right view, but assuming it is, why? And And I'm thinking that The days of Noah, Jesus saw a parallel also between the days of Noah and the days of His return. Remember that? Remember in Matthew 24, Jesus said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So there is a sense in which the flood and the sin and the judgment upon unbelievers and the salvation of the few, the remnant, that happened in Noah's day is a foreshadowing of similar events when Jesus Christ comes back in glory. And I think maybe also, if the readers were familiar with this, that would also be another layer of encouragement for them. That what happened in the days of Noah prefigure, foreshadow the final judgment. The judgment of the flood was the most severe, incredibly catastrophic judgment upon the earth that had ever existed up until that time and since that time. Far greater than the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Far greater than the ten plagues that fell upon Egypt. A worldwide flood that destroyed and killed every human on the planet except for those eight in the ark were judged. And that was such a phenomenal event in human history that that also prefigures the final judgment 
when all people will be gathered before the throne of Jesus Christ and all will be condemned and judged except that remnant. That small number of believers who alone will be saved because they are in the ark. They are in Christ. The ark is a picture of Christ. And they alone will be saved. But everyone else will be condemned on that final day of judgment. And I think in bringing up this illustration of Noah that Peter possibly may have in mind as another layer of encouragement that the days of Noah, yeah, look at the, look at the wicked, but they were judged. And God saved His own, His remnant. Now in Peter's day, similar thing. Don't fear those who persecute you. Don't fear those who cause you to suffer. Don't fear those who slander you and defile you or revile you or whatever. Because they will be judged. But God will save His own. He will save His own. And in the last judgment, that's when the final climax of that judgment and salvation will take place. A repeat of the days of Noah on a far greater scale even then when Jesus Christ comes back and He sets up His great white throne judgment and all the living, both the living and the dead, will appear before Him. And the books will be opened and they will be judged according to their deeds. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. So what you have in the judgment of Noah's day is a small foreshadowing of the great judgment when Jesus Christ comes back. And for the readers who are reading this, and Peter brings up Noah with all these implications, I think Peter wants to encourage them to stand firm in their faith. Don't violate their conscience. Be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you may suffer. Yes, you may go through all kinds of hardships in your pilgrimage in this life. But you remain faithful to Christ. Because in the end, all of the enemies of Christ will be judged and condemned. And all of those who know Christ in saving faith, they will be saved and glorified forever and ever. And let that encourage you in this difficult day, in this day of suffering, to remain faithful to Christ. And Noah is a great example of what has happened in the past. And he becomes a foreshadowing of what will happen again in the future. Those who reject Christ will be condemned and judged. Those who receive Christ will be saved forever. So I think in part of this, by implication, Peter is trying to encourage those who are suffering for righteousness. Look at the, he said, look, look at the hope that you have in Christ. And let that give you the, the strength, the courage to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ today. If you know where Peter has brought his readers up to this point in this letter, you see this is where Peter's heart is, is to give them hope. To encourage those who are suffering for righteousness with the hope of glory to come. And we should never forget that. Just by way of quick review, he opens the letter 
by referring to his readers as elect exiles. The chosen few. The few that come to faith in Christ when the majority of the world will reject Him. You are elect and you're exiles. You're just here for a temporary period of time. This is not your eternal home. And then he goes on in chapter 1 and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance. Here's that hope, that future glory. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This salvation to be revealed in the last time, that's the glory, that's the inheritance. So you're just pilgrims here now. You're suffering for righteousness now. But stand firm because your glory awaits you. Your inheritance is ahead of you. And then he says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, keep sober in spirit. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See how Peter wants them in suffering for righteousness to look ahead, to look at the gain, look at the glory that they have in Christ. Let that glory outweigh the suffering that they're going through now. If you have that hope. And he's continually reminding them of that. And then in chapter 2, he reminds them, remember who you are. You're suffering for righteousness. You feel like you're the dung of the earth. Everyone's persecuting you. They're, they're, they're slandering you. You feel like you're getting beat up. But remember who you are in Christ. You're a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. He will bring you into His presence to possess you forever and ever so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And then here's a sola gratia, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy by God's grace. Remember who you are. Don't get so sunk down into your struggles and your sorrows and your disappointments and sufferings. Look ahead to the glory. Remember who you are. And then in this context, in chapter 3, verse 16, he reminds them, have a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. They will be judged The ones who revile you and slander you, they will be put to shame. You remember that. You're being put to shame now. But bear up under that. For on the day of judgment, they will be put to shame. And you will be be brought into His glory forever. As He says in verse 18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So Christ has died to bring you to God. 
And ultimately, when Christ comes back and we receive our glorified body, we'll enter into the fullness of that hope, the fullness of that glory, the fullness of being in His presence when we will see Jesus, our Savior, face to face. We will enter into it now. So encourage your heart when you're going through struggles and trials and afflictions, whether for righteousness or just because of the difficulties of life. Keep your faith in Christ. Trust in Him. Put your hope in Him. Because one day, those who reject Christ will be judged, but you will be saved forever and ever in His presence. And let that give you hope. You're God's treasure. You're God's special possession by His grace. In and of ourselves, we deserve hell. We are nothing. We are totally unworthy. But by His grace, He has chosen you and adopted you into His family. You're His child. He delights in His children. And by the grace of God, we're the apple of His eye. He has inscribed our names upon His palms. And because of our salvation in Christ, we shall one day be adorned with glory. That is your future. Fix your eyes on that when you suffer for righteousness. For what happened in the days of Noah are but a prelude for what will happen again in the future. That the evil will be judged and condemned, but the righteous will be saved forever. Rejoice in that. Find comfort in that. And I think those are good words for us today as well. So let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we uh, thank You, Lord, for challenging us with this difficult portion of Scripture. No doubt Peter knew exactly what he meant. But 2,000 years removed, Lord, we struggle with trying to correctly interpret the meaning of these words. But Lord, we know that ultimately the message is clear. That those who afflict the church today, those who slander and revile Your people, will be put to shame. They, like the generation in Noah's day, will be condemned. They will be judged. But the elect believers in Jesus Christ those who have been called out of darkness into Your light, those who have put their faith in Christ alone to save them from their sins, they will be saved and glorified forever and ever. Just like Noah's family alone was preserved and saved, so everyone who by faith have entered into the ark of Jesus Christ will be saved in the day of judgment and wrath yet to come. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that has never truly acknowledged their sin before You, O Father, convict their hearts and grant them faith in Christ that they cannot save themselves. They cannot earn salvation by trying to be good or keeping the law. For there is none righteous, no, not one. But Father, open their eyes that they might see Jesus Christ in all of His glory. That He died for sinners. That He bore all of our sins and suffered all of God's wrath. 
that we might be completely and totally forgiven. We need nothing more than Jesus Christ and give them grace to put their trust in Him and in Him alone. So that when You come back, Lord, and it's time for the resurrection of our bodies, that we will stand before You dressed in the righteousness of Christ which we have by faith alone. And we will enter into Your glory forever and ever. So Lord, fill us with that hope, especially in times of difficulty and affliction and suffering for righteousness, that our faith might be strong and emboldened to stand for Christ. So help us, Lord. The Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Be our strength, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.